So let's turn, please, to Matthew 13, verse 45, as we pick up our study where we left off. Matthew 13, verse 45. And Jesus continues, and he says this, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. A couple of weeks ago, when we studied the parable of the mustard seed, I handed out in the bulletin a small plastic packet, and in it was a sample mustard seed. I regret that even though I do make the big bucks here at First Baptist, I do not have a sample pearl for you today. And even if you are not sitting here, but in the studio audience at Oprah Winfrey's TV show, who's famous for handing out cars and such, even she could not afford such an extravagant gift, especially the type of pearl that Jesus speaks of. Because the pearl the merchant seeks in this parable is one of unique and rare perfection. It is, in fact, so rare that this expert merchant searches the world and there is only one pearl available. So, no, I could not provide a single sample of this type of pearl, let alone for everyone here today. But there is one person who can find and did acquire such a pearl. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. Allow me to begin by giving you what is the popular, the common interpretation of this parable. And by popular, I mean the interpretation that is widely taught by commentators, preachers, and may even appear in the footnotes of our study Bibles. The popular view is that the merchant seeking the pearl represents one of us, the man or woman who recognizes the supreme value of the kingdom. And therefore, according to this view, we should make every sacrifice we can in order to gain, to obtain the kingdom of God. While this interpretation is possible because the kingdom is more valuable than even the most precious of pearls, there are two major problems with the most common interpretation. First, the common interpretation does not adequately adequately take into account the context of the series of parables that have come before it. More specifically, the popular interpretation changes the identity of the figure doing the action. In the two introductory parables, which Jesus later explained to his disciples, Jesus said that it was he himself who is doing the action. 
Let's review what we considered last week because it's crucial to our understanding of this pair of similar parables. That is the parable of the treasure, which we considered last week, and today the parable of the pearl. Let's review an important detail in the parable of the wheat and tares. If you would, please, look at Matthew 13, verse 24, and it says this, Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man, a man who sowed good seed in his field. Now, if we look at verse 36, we hear again part of Jesus' explanation of that parable. He tells us who the man in the parable represents. Verse 36, Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. Jesus answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. And so in the parable of the wheat and tares, the man doing the action is Jesus. This clear identification also led us to conclude that in the first parable, the parable of the sower, the man who sowed the seed of the gospel that fell on the various soils, which represented the various kinds of hearts, that also was Jesus. Therefore, I suggest that we have good reason to believe that in this pair of parables regarding the treasure and the pearl, the man doing the action in each of these also represents Jesus. There is no reason for us to believe that within this series of parables, we are meant to suddenly insert ourselves into the parables and make ourselves the person buying the treasure or the field or the pearl. I suggest it is better to maintain the continuity through the parables such that Jesus is the one doing the action in each of the parables. But if that is the case, we may wonder why many interpreters have done the opposite and teach that we should insert ourselves into these two parables. At the risk of oversimplification, I will suggest that part of the reason, just part of the reason, is that during the past 50 or 100 years, it has become increasingly common in biblical interpretation to use a man-centered approach. And what I mean by a man-centered approach is that it has become fashionable to approach the Bible by asking, what does this text mean? say about me. Of course, we are meant to apply the Scripture to our lives. But I maintain that the proper way to approach Scripture is to always ask first, what does this Scripture say about God? 
Only after we have answered that question, what does this scripture say about God, then we ask, what do I do in response to what the scripture says about God? For those interpreters who insist on inserting themselves into the parable and thus see themselves as the farmer finding the treasure and then buying the field, or the merchant finding the pearl and then buying the pearl, it presents a second problem, and it's a very glaring problem. It means that these parables appear to teach that someone can buy their way into the kingdom, which I find would be quite unlikely for Jesus to even use illustrations possibly suggesting that when that was a great problem, not only in Israel, but today for many who believe that they could essentially buy their way into into the kingdom by good works or by works of charity. We know it is impossible to buy our way into the kingdom. Scripture is very clear on that. But as we discussed last week, that difficulty is eliminated if we continue to understand that it is Jesus who is portrayed first as the farmer and then as the merchant in this pair of parables. If that is the case, the man in the parable does not represent us, but instead represents Jesus. And so some scholars will suggest that Jesus is using this pair of parables to describe one of the mysteries of the kingdom. And that mystery of the kingdom is that in the first parable, Jesus will describe In this pair of parables, I mean, Jesus will describe his two-pronged approach in his ministry of the gospel. And so in the first parable, let me me repeat that. You're, You're distracted. In this pair of parables, some scholars suggest that this pair of parables is a way uh, for Jesus to describe his two-pronged approach. And in that two-pronged approach, the first parable, which represents the treasure, the treasure represents Israel. And so his first approach is to approach Israel with the gospel. And then in the second parable, the, the pearl represents the Gentile world, And that would be his second part of his two-pronged approach. And the Apostle Paul would put this very concisely in Romans 1.6, the gospel is the power of God for everyone who believes to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. As we did with the previous parable, Let's start by focusing on the main character in the parable. And in the parable that uh, is before us today, it's the merchant, described as the merchant. And as I've already pointed out, I believe that merchant represents Christ. Now, this does not need to be your view, 
But I am presenting this view, which I happen to subscribe to, for you to consider, and I leave it to you to decide for yourselves. But if that is the view that I'm presenting, some might object and say, well, gee, I, I don't like the sound of that. I, it's hard for me to imagine the Lord Jesus Christ describing himself as a merchant, a, a salesman. Well, to that person, I would say this. When Jesus explained his two parables, he said he was the sower of the seed. And so I would ask this, why would we accept Jesus describing himself as a farmer, but not as a merchant? Is a farmer somehow better than a merchant? After all, when a farmer harvests his crops, doesn't the farmer effectively become a merchant when he sells his crops. So one is no different than the other, or in, no different in the sense of being better than the other. Besides, he's using this as figurative language to make it understandable for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. But even if we were not sure if Jesus is describing himself as the merchant, there is another way we can approach this question. Let's consider the popular interpretation, the more common interpretation, where it is suggested that the merchant represents the man or woman who is seeking after the pearl, meaning they are seeking after Christ and his kingdom in order to acquire it. Well, the problem there is that there has never been a man or woman who has sought the Lord on their own initiative. Now, somebody might say, well, I, I, I'm not sure about that because I recall that there is a passage in the Old Testament that tells sinners to seek the Lord. And you're saying that nobody has ever sought the Lord by their own initiative. Well, the, the passage that you're probably thinking of is this from Isaiah 55. And God says there, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And turn to our God for he will freely pardon. The sad fact is this. While God does command the sinner to seek after him, as long as we, human beings, remain in our fallen, unregenerate state, we will not seek after God. The sinner does not seek after God, but instead the sinner does exactly the opposite. The sinner avoids God. Now, if you're not sure if that's the case, when we want to reflect on man's fundamental human behaviors, I find it is always instructive to go back to the very beginning, to the book of Genesis. I ask you to recall what happened after Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. What did they do? After they ate the forbidden fruit, did they go seeking after God in order to confess their sin? No. Did they go seeking after God so that they could beg for God's forgiveness? No. No. What did they do? They hid. 
right? They hid in the bush. And that is why it was necessary for God to seek after them. We're told that while God is walking through the garden, he says, where are you? Sinful man does not seek after God. The Apostle Paul is very clear on this subject as he quotes the psalmist David when Paul writes in Romans 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, listen, no one who seeks after God. That is why it was necessary for God himself to come in the person of Jesus Christ. Listen, Jesus himself explained the purpose of his coming when he said this, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That is why in this parable, when we read about the merchant seeking after a pearl, I believe that is the image of Jesus Christ. Now, some people, even some of us here, may question that assertion that no one seeks after Christ. We may reflect on our own experience and say, well, I do remember a time when I had not yet accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, but I was seeking after him. I knew a little about him, but I knew I needed to know more about him. I needed to know my promise. I needed to know about the promises that Jesus makes so that I would be able to decide if I was going to trust my life to Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I will not dispute that kind of biographical account. But the real question is this. Do we seek after Christ according to our own power? In other words, do we make the first move? Or is there something else at work? Or better yet, is there someone else at work? Well, the answer to that is, there is someone else at work. And that someone is the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. Without the Holy Spirit, we cannot make that step to seek after Christ. Our sinful hearts prefer darkness. We want to hide in our sin. We want to push God away. And so how do we seek after him and come to faith in Christ? Jesus himself answers that question. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. See, in this relationship with God, it is always God in his grace and mercy who makes the first move. And when he has made that move and his Holy Spirit draws us to Christ, it is then that we go after Christ in order to seek after him. He is the seeker. He is the one who seeks and saves the Considering the scripture tells us the sinner does not seek after God, it is highly unlikely that the merchant in this parable represents a sinner seeking after the kingdom. 
Instead, it seems preferable to understand the merchant as Christ seeking after sinners. It is he who came to seek and save the lost. And speaking of lost, in the first part of the pair of parables, wasn't the treasure lost? It was underground. It was lost. And again, I ask you to review the disc for this pair of parables. If we are willing to consider that Jesus is the merchant, possibility, if he is the merchant, and it is he who's doing the seeking, let's consider the rest of the parable. Verse 45. Again, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The next question we've got to ask is, what does the pearl represent? I've already suggested that the pearl represents Gentiles, and more specifically, Gentiles who the Holy Spirit has drawn into Christ's church. In the previous parable, the parable of the treasure, our task was more clear-cut because when we wanted to identify Jesus' meaning of the treasure, we looked back at the Old Testament and we saw in scriptures such as Exodus 19 and Psalm 135 that God's word refers to Israel as his treasure. Unfortunately, Jesus doesn't use, I'm sorry, the Old Testament doesn't have a similar parallel reference in the Old Testament to identify Gentiles as pearls. Jesus does, however, use the image of pearls figuratively twice in the New Testament, here and in Matthew 7. And in both places, the pearl represents something of extreme value and preciousness, which is understandable because in that cultural context, there were a number of items that were often used for comparison. For example, if you wanted to say something was extremely small, you compared it to what? A mustard seed. If you wanted to say something was extremely valuable, you compared it to a pearl. For Jesus, I submit, there was nothing more valuable than his church. In order to understand why pearls are so valuable, let me give you some background. In the first century, the pearl was thought of much as we think of diamonds today. In the first century, pearls were the most valuable of gems. And that was so for two reasons. First, because of their beauty. And secondly, because of their rarity. The reason they were so rare is because they were extremely difficult and dangerous to find. Pearl oysters in the Middle East, such as in the Red Sea, and even more valuable pearls are found in the Persian Gulf. In those areas... Pearl oysters are typically found at a depth of 40 feet. And so, the first century pearl hunter, usually men, the way they, the pearl diver did this 
got into their boat, had a big rock with a rope tied to the rock, and then the diver would step off the boat holding the rock and bring them 40 feet to the bottom. The reason was the rope was tied to the rock is so they could bring the rock back up to use it again. And so 40 feet down they go, and they spend as much time as they can collecting um, oysters in which pearls are found, leaving enough air for them to swim 40 feet back up to the surface. And as you might imagine, many people died in that process. Their rarity is further understood when we realize a diver had to bring up one ton of oysters to find a single pearl. Now, of those pearls that were found, they varied widely in quality. They could be oblong or distorted. And so to find a, 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 an exquisite pearl, that was extremely rare. This merchant searched the world for it. With that rarity in mind, let me give you four characteristics of the gem, the, the pearl, that makes it an excellent figure to illustrate the church, which is predominantly made up of Gentiles. First, John Santos pointed out to me after the service last week that according to the Jewish dietary laws prescribed in the Old Testament, the oyster and other mollusks are considered unclean. And so in our discussion, we agreed that would be a fitting image for the Jewish view of Gentiles. But as we thought more about it, John and I, we recognized that something as lowly and unclean as an oyster, it was quite miraculous that from that unclean object could emerge the most precious and the most valuable of gems, the pearl. And whether it was the creation of a pearl in an oyster or a Gentile becoming a new creation in Christ, those are both the work of God. This leads to the second way the pearl illustrates Gentiles and the church that emerged. The pearl is a result of suffering. We know that the pearl is the result of a foreign object, such as a little grain of sand slips into the shell of an oyster, causes that oyster to generate a substance that surrounds that object, and then layer after layer, it becomes a pearl. And it ought to be obvious that Christ's church is a result of his suffering. But out of his suffering... He has brought something beautiful, his church. Third, the pearl is a symbol of unity. If we look at the text again, we notice that when the merchant set out, he was looking for fine pearls, plural. But the true object of his search was to find one pearl, singular, a pearl of great price, and I prefer the NIV's translation, a pearl of great value, something precious to him, one pearl of great value. 
While Jesus seeks individuals to add to his church, which he has since builds layer upon layer, like living stones. He builds his church into one precious. He builds his people into one precious church. Listen to this from Romans 12. In Christ, we who are many form one body. The pearl represents the unity of the church. It is worth noting that the pearl is the only gem that cannot be divided and retain its value. Any other gem, such as a diamond or a ruby, you can divide it, cut it in half, and then you can recut it, resurface it. And the value of these stones, they are reduced. The value, if you take a large stone, you make it into two smaller stones, the the value of each of those stones is reduced, but they still retain their value. The pearl, however, when it is divided, what is it worth? It's worthless. You've never gone to the store and seen for sale half a pearl, right? And so the pearl is a helpful symbol to highlight the unity of the church. Fourth, the pearl symbolizes the light of the church. In my study of pearls, I learned that one of the features by which pearls are evaluated is their iridescence. Iridescence refers to an object's ability to reflect light. While there are many objects that reflect light, one of the most striking features of the pearl is that the light it reflects seems to come from inside the pearl. Think of one of those silver Christmas bulb ornaments, right? When that reflects light, it comes from the surface. But a pearl, it seems that the light comes from within it, from, from the heart of the object, so to speak. And so it is a beautiful illustration of the light that is meant to come, that is, to emerge from his church. Didn't Christ say, you are the light of the world? I would suggest that if you have pearls, next time you wear them, think of that. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. And even as Jesus says that, we know that even as Jesus says, you are the light of the world, that light does not originate from you. It's a reflection of Christ's glory in you. The final part of the parable of the pearl is very similar to the ending of the parable of the treasure. That's why they go together. If we look at the end of verse 46, Jesus says this, When he had found one pearl of great price, or alternatively, of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Once again, if we were to consider ourselves the merchant, it does not square theologically with the idea that we we have anything of value in order to purchase the kingdom. 
But if we view the parable from God's perspective, as the context of the parable suggests, it makes perfect sense. Because the idea of Jesus giving up everything points to the cross. It's the language of the cross. Listen to this from 1 Peter chapter 1. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. Peter says you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Listen to this from 1 Corinthians. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. And what is that price? That price is Christ's blood. He bought us with his blood to redeem us from sin, from death. It is why I asked that we repeat a hymn that we sang last week so that it would be our sacrifice of praise as we acknowledge that there is nothing we can do. There is nothing that we can give in order to acquire by our own power the kingdom of God. Our salvation depends entirely on Christ. It is true, as the hymn says, that we are about to sing. Jesus paid it all. For the Jew first, and then for the Gentile. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you've come to seek and to save the lost. That you considered us so valuable that you gave your life for us for the Jew and for the Gentile. And so, Lord, help us to shine this week as we recall that you indeed paid it all. Amen.